Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chats. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. The research shows that if next to your most popular cocktail, you put a message that says, this is our most popular cocktail, sales of that cocktail typically go up significantly. Here's the really interesting thing. It's not just sales of that cocktail that go up. Sales of all cocktails go up. Today, I'm talking with Steve Martin. Steve is Faculty Director of Behavioural Science at Columbia University's Graduate Business School and Chair of the Global Association of Applied Behavioural Scientists. He has authored and co-authored three books, Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't and Why, and the international bestseller, Yes, 60 Secrets from the Science of Persuasion, which combined have sold over 1.5 million copies. Besides writing and lecturing, Steve spends a great deal of his time helping organisations connect with their audiences through the application of behavioural science insights drawn from psychology, neuroscience and economics. On this episode, Steve and I discuss how a bar can apply behavioural science to improve customer experience. We explore how best to be heard by your customers, how to engineer a better drinking experience, what we can do with menus to drive sales and focus attention, how to make the best first impression and the best last impression, as well as the often understated significance of both, and much more. So much of the work we do in hospitality is to better the experience of our guests. And while we may be taught how to do this through training programs and learning from colleagues, I think a greater appreciation of the things that make a good night out can be achieved by investigating the underlying science of behaviour and referencing some of the studies that have been conducted in this area. Steve was a fantastic guide through this field, which, as you will come to see, is as broad as it is fascinating. Okay, I'm here with Steve Martin. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for having me, Tristan. Good to meet you. Yeah, you too. So perhaps you could start by telling me, telling us, uh, what your background is, perhaps what a behavioural psychologist does, what your, what your area of expertise is. Well, as you rightly say, I'm a, a behavioural scientist. My area of interest, and I guess what I'm well known for, is the psychology of persuasion. So what is it that causes people to pay attention when you have a recommendation to make or a request of someone? Under what circumstances are they most likely to say yes to you? Um, that's kind of what I'm known for. That's my area of uh, expertise and interest. How did you get into doing this? Was it sort of a lifelong, you, you have a moment when you're a child and you're like, this is it, I want to learn the power of persuasion? Or was it something that came later in your, in your academic career? I'd love to have a great story about how I set out on this journey early on in my life. And it was the thing that I always wanted to do. But I can't say that to you, uh, Tristan. It's uh, the case that Good fortune got me to where I am. I actually am probably pertinent to the conversation we're having today. Uh, one of my early jobs was working in the brewing industry. Uh, so mm. I carried the bag for a brewer, you know, knocking on doors and selling barrels of beer and spirits, that kind of thing. And uh, then I subsequently moved to uh, another sales position and um, I, was, I was made redundant and, uh, and I went back to you know, what I studied early in my career as a student, psychology, and uh, was fortunate enough to end up meeting 
one of, and still actually, arguably the uh, most noted researcher in the field of the psychology of persuasion. And I had a, an amazing opportunity to, to go and meet with him and then subsequently work with him. And uh, that was 20 years ago. And we've published uh, books together. We've conducted research uh, these last 20 years that uh, has set me on this trail. So uh, good fortune has gotten me to where I am. Uh, I didn't have a grand plan, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> on a trail that's looped back round to the world of alcohol again. And uh, welcome back. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, so... I'm really interested in this sort of psychology of persuasion, the power of being heard. And for most of our listeners, which are, of course, employed in the hospitality industry, many of them bartenders themselves, it's a sort of intrinsic part of the job that we do. So perhaps you could just describe the sort of key components of what it takes to be heard, to be listened and to be heard. Yeah, of course. Perhaps, though, before I do that, let me say something else that I think is important for people to recognize and understand about the power and the psychology of persuasion. Because I think often we all know people that are influential, that are persuasive, that able, are able rather to capture their audience, you know, get their messages heard. And, and often we look on them with envy and think, oh, if only I was born with that ability to kind of engage an audience, to be charismatic to be heard. And it turns out that whilst it is the case that some people do have that natural gift, it's not the case that that means that those of us that weren't born with the ability to influence and persuade others can't learn something about the scientific psychology behind it. So I think it's really important for us to recognize that it's a skill that can be learned, it's a skill that can be practiced, it's not something that's just born to a lucky few. And the rest of us have to look on enviously and think, oh, if only it was me that was given that innate skill. Um, and, and that, I think, is a nice link to learning about the psychology of persuasion. There are factors, there are scientific rules for the influence and persuasion process that we can all learn. And that's essentially what I've been studying. Uh, and, and, and that's what people learn when they come to our university courses, when they come to our business courses, you know, how can we employ this fascinating and importantly, Tristan, highly applicable and sustainable and ethical approach to getting heard more often. Mm. Yeah, I want to go on to the ethical side of it later on, because it's fascinating to sort of delve into th this topic of persuasion and, you know, how persuasive you should be and when it's appropriate and when it isn't, right? So do you find or have you found that through your investigation and learnings of the power of persuasion, and the psychology of persuasion, that you've been slowly integrating some of these tools into your arsenal, into your weaponry as time's gone on and become a more effective persuader yourself? Well, I'd like to think so. I think you'd probably have to ask my audiences uh, <laughs> about that. One thing I can tell you is, is that um, the fact that I perhaps know more than most about this topic doesn't make me immune to being persuaded myself. I, even though I know about this stuff, have written about it, have published research on this work. I, I'm just as likely to be influenced and persuaded by the way someone delivers a message or the way something is presented on a menu, for example, or the way an advertisement is placed in front of it. I, I'm not immune to these things. I, I'm, I'm just as likely to be influenced and persuaded as, as anyone else. I think mm. that's important to point out. 
Yeah, well, I've got my guard up, just so you know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm wary of what you're going to try and do to me through the course of the next uh, 45 minutes or so. And, I mean, I, I, I'd be interested to sort of hear your thoughts on how, you know, someone can train to be so effective in that, in that realm. It's perhaps in the capability of most people to be able to take on board some of these skills. I think where the challenge comes is in their responsible and, and, and ethical use. Mm. Uh, most people, certainly the people that I deal with in, in business, you know, whether that's in public sector businesses or, or commercial private sector businesses, they're not interested in getting their way once. Um, and some of these techniques, some of these tactics, these strategies we'll talk about today could be used, I think, to persuade someone to say yes to a request or, or do something that ordinarily they wouldn't choose to do if they thought about things carefully. But of course, if that's your game, you're going to only win once. Uh, mm. One of the things that you know, we may not be necessarily very good at recognizing what does influence and persuade us and cause us to make the decisions that we actually do, but most of us are pretty good at recognizing if we've been tricked afterwards. And of course, the cost of being tricked is that you don't become immune to the technique in the future. Instead, your radar is raised mm. for the person that used that technique on you. So for those that are thinking about using these insights in manipulative, short-term ways, the message is they are manipulative, it will be short-term, and there will be a cost that you can pay or that you are likely to pay in the future. Uh, most businesses, I think, are in the business, and I'm sure your listeners are in exactly this place. They're interested in engaging with people in such a way that people want to come back to them. You know, I'm often asked, you know, how do you know if you have influence? And you know if you have influence by the number of people that come to you, that seek out your advice, that seek out your insights and your counsel. Mm. That, I think, is a key indicator of whether you do have true legitimate influence and persuasion um, and short-term manipulative techniques will not get you to that place yeah so we i mean naturally um as bartenders bar operators we want to be steering people in the direction of doing something that results in a good outcome from their perspective anyway i mean no one's sort of setting out to give people a bad experience so i guess that we can probably be fairly fairly secure in the fact that what we're doing is good for everyone it's good for the business you know if we're trying to upsell a particular cocktail that we know is tasty and that perhaps is going to make more money um, and it's good for the customer because we have their best interests at heart. We want them to drink something tasty and have a good experience and come back again another time and again and again. Right. It's exactly right. If, if the outcome is they have a great time with you, your business does well as a result of their visiting you and they come back and ideally they come back and they bring people with them or tell others about your business. That is the ideal scenario. And, and that, I think, is where the psychology of persuasion and some of the insights we're going to be talking about today can really be helpful and can be applied quickly, efficiently, costlessly, generally as well. Mm. So what are some of the tools available to, to kind of affect the behavior of, of people in our businesses, our customers, our guests? Well, there are a range of tools. Uh, we can talk about several of them. I, I think one of the things that's important to say about all of these tools is that 
they're not steeped in economic theory. Um, so we're not talking about persuading others because you reduce your price or because there's a special offer or there's a, if you buy this, you get this for free. That's the domain of the economists. The domain of the psychologist is, is about how do you position a request or how do you make a recommendation that increases the likelihood that people will say yes to you. And as a starting point, often it's about how you are perceived in the moment that you are first seen. A lot of persuasion actually occurs before you even open your mouth. Um, think about, you know, if you walk into, for example, a medical centre, how would you know um, who the doctors and the nurses are compared to perhaps the patients? Well, you, you look at their dress, you look at the signs, the signals that determine, ah, that's someone that looks like they're in a position here of, of knowledge, of credibility, of authority. Uh, so oftentimes our minds are made up about someone or a given situation within a matter of milliseconds, uh, how they look, the way they stand, how they're dressed, these kind of things. So, so there's an immediate point. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, so a bartender kind of falls into this category, right? At least if you believe that you're in a decent bar, you will revert to the bartender's authority on the matter of what drink to buy, I mean, or, or, or waiter or waitress or chef. Um, you know, you will defer to them for, to suggest, you know, what you should be drinking or, um, you know, where you should be sitting, so on and so forth, because you believe you're in a, you know, decent venue and that that person has earned the right to be in this position of authority. Exactly right. There's something else that your customer is in or potentially could be in, uh, in terms of a situation, and that's a situation of uncertainty. If they're coming into your bar for the first time, they may not necessarily be familiar with the rituals and the routines. They may not necessarily be familiar with the drinks you serve. Um, you know, most people, I guess, would be familiar with the classic cocktails, but if you're a venue that's known for you know, being unique or bespoke about the cocktails and the drinks that you actually serve, there's gonna be some uncertainty there. And one thing we do know from you know, decades of, 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 of psychological research into the persuasion process is that there are two places in particular that people look to when they find themselves in a position of uncertainty. They either look to the expert in the room, and in this instance, that will be your bartender, or they look to what other people who are most similar to them are doing in mm. that situation. And that I think is a really useful frame for thinking about how you set up an environment of uh, you know, engagement, connectivity, and persuasion in, in your bars and in your, in your, in your restaurants and your, your venues. You, you recognize that frequently people coming in will be in that situation of uncertainty. Where do I sit? What should I drink? What looks good on the menu? And we can't find the answers within ourselves because they're not there. We, you know, we, we have no history here. Um, so we will, you know, perhaps say to the bartender, you know, what is good? Or, you know, we'll look to the couple sitting next and thinking, actually, that looks quite tasty. You know, what is it that they're having? I'll have the same. These are the two basic routes that most of us look to when deciding how to make a good decision when we don't have all the available information to us. Where do you think that behaviour like comes from originally why is it we're so quick to sort of mimic others rather than you know be the master of our own experiences and thoughts and, and intentions 
Yes, yeah, a good question. We, we believe that there's two primary reasons why this occurs. So the first is, it's about accuracy. So all of us are motivated, Tristan, to make as good a decision, as accurate or as correct a decision as we can. And increasingly in our world today, we find ourselves needing to make those decisions without all the available information. And so if the expert says this is a good choice for you, we're, we're outsourcing that need for accuracy, that need for the right decision to, to that person. Say, well, you know, you're in, a, you're in a better position. You have more knowledge, you have more information, you have more experience than me in this moment. So I will defer my decision-making to what the expert says. So there's an accuracy element to it. Mm. But there's a connection element to it as well. We're all social creatures. We want to act generally. And it is the majority of people want to act generally in a way that gains the approval of others, you know, makes those connections. Uh, generally speaking, we have a much better time in life if we share that connection with someone else or others. And so looking to what others are doing, to a certain extent, is also, you know, a signal of accuracy. Maybe they know something that I don't, and so I'll follow them. They all seem to be drinking that cocktail, so I will as well. But there's a connectivity to it as well. By, by choosing the same as others, I'm, I'm kind of connecting to them mm. in that way. And that fulfills that fundamental motivation that all of us have to kind of be connected, to be you know, socially networked with others. Mm. I mean, it sounds, it's almost like it's this sort of deep-rooted sort of tribal connection experience that we're after alongside this sort of concept of a shaman or someone that you defer responsibility to who looks over the tribe. And there, and of course that's, you know, that we've been behaving that way for hundreds of thousands of years. And so in a way, I mean, it's not just bars and hospitality, but that hospitality experience of mimic mimicry to the other people that are in the venue and then deferral of responsibility to the bartender is really just sort of a rewriting of that you know that 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 social situation that we've been experiencing for generations you're exactly right Tristan. what you've just described there are two of three fundamental motivations that all of us regardless of our culture our upbringing hold deep within inside of ourselves this idea that we we want to act in ways that seem like the right thing to do we want to act in ways that seem like the connected thing to do and there's a third one, actually. We want to behave in ways that allow us to feel good about ourselves. Um, and if we can tick each of those three motivations, the accuracy, the connection, the ego motivations, when folks come into our bars and in our businesses, if we can tick those three or two of those three, we're, we're in good shape. Mm. Right. So we've established that already, you're, to a large extent, your behavior is is dictated by the scenario itself before anyone's even said anything. So moving on to when, you know, a bartender or a server does actually open their mouth, what sort of tools might they use perhaps in their speech or the, you know, enunciation of words or the way that they, their body language, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there to unpack, I expect. So um, yeah, how, how can they be effective in that sense? Yeah, well, let me give you some practical examples, because we talked a little bit about the theory here. So let me give you some, some mm. concrete examples from studies that, that we, my team and, and others around the world have actually done. And, and, and here's the first, and it speaks to that idea of connection. This is a study that was first done in, in Hong Kong a number of years ago. We've replicated it uh, many, many times now. 
over the past few years and found it to be extraordinarily effective, particularly in situations where people are unsure about what the right choice to make is. And it concerns something that you can put on your menu, cocktail bars, or that you can say to someone directly when they're perusing the menu and they're a little uncertain. The research shows that if next to your most popular cocktail or bar snack, whatever it may be, you put a message that says, this is our most popular cocktail, <laughs> sales of that cocktail typically go up significantly. Here's the really interesting thing. It's not just sales of that cocktail that go up. Sales of all cocktails go up. Hmm. It has this category effect. It's like, oh, right, so maybe I was going to order a beer or a gin and tonic, but it seems like cocktails are super popular in this hmm. place. And in situations where we've put it on dessert menus, for example, we increase sales of just not that dessert, but all desserts by typically 16 to 18%. Uh, we've replicated it uh, in, in starters, in sides, in restaurants, in, uh, in, in wine lists as well. It's a, a pretty strong effect. So there's one thing that you can do straight away. Uh, just honestly point out what is the most popular cocktail. Now, it needs to be the most popular, so not your favourite. That's a different category, although that can have an effect as well. Is it, is it not self-fulfilling, though? Can you not just select a cocktail at random, tell people it's the most popular, and as long as it's not horrible, then it will become the most popular? Well, it will be, but that's my point, is that um, if it's not the most popular, then you could argue that you're not really being truthful about that information. Yeah. Um, and, and this is important, I think, because it may actually be that your most popular cocktail, and I've actually worked with some bars where their most popular cocktail isn't actually the cocktail they would prefer to sell. No, that's, I think that's quite often the case, in fact. <laughs> yeah, um, we don't need to name them, but <laughs> we know those kind of cocktails yeah. that are probably... Mojito would definitely be a high on that list. Yeah, most bartenders hate Star, Martini, that kind yeah. of thing. But, but actually, the one that you really want to be selling is, is one that has been kind of tailored, is unique to your premises, that has been you know, crafted by one of your expert bartenders. In that instance, the recommendation is instead of pointing out what is the most popular, is to instead include the words, this is my favorite, or this would be my personal choice if I was in your situation. And in that instance, you're not relying on what many other people in the past have done as a way of influencing people to make a decision. You are pointing to the expert in the room. You know, we've done studies, I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, a colleague and, of mine and, and myself, we did some studies in uh, a, a pretty well-known a quick service restaurant bar, thousands of them, they sell burgers. And what they found was that when someone ordered a burger, if the server behind the counter offered that customer a topping on their burger, say bacon, and added after they've offered that topping, the honest fact that this is my personal favorite, so would you like bacon on that? It happens to be my personal favorite when I order a burger. They increase the sales of that bacon topping by double digit effects, mm. typically 20, 21% increase. Now, a few cents for a slice of bacon, 
but scaled up, you know, the thousands and thousands of customers being served every week, every month, suddenly that's a significant impact that one can have on your bottom line and on your business. So, you know, I can see situations where, you know, that could be honestly and ethically applied uh, mm. in, in any bar or hospitality scenario uh, where the expert in the room uh, is legitimately pointing out what their favorite is or what their choice would be that's another another route you could take yeah you, i mean you're kind of double you, it's a double bummy then isn't it because you're first of all you've got the the expert you're also sort of tapping into that mimicry thing as well because you're saying not only do i suggest that you eat this or drink this but it's what i eat and drink as well um, so you're hitting both of those sort of elements of suggestion, aren't you? I think you are. The mimicry thing is really interesting to me as well. Um, and, it, and it's another strategy, actually, for effective persuasion. And in this instance, it, it concerns not necessarily what you say to someone first, but what you say to them in response to what they say. So, for example, there are studies that have been conducted in restaurants that show that if the food server after taking a customer's order, repeats back word for word exactly what that customer has just ordered, they typically get greater levels of gratuity and tip mm. at the end of the meal. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. I, we've all had that experience where we've gone out for dinner and we sat down and we've, we've, we've ordered and the kind of the waiter or waitress sits there and they kind of nod and they go, yeah, 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 okay, I'll get that for you. And they walk off and you think... Did they actually get the order? <laughs> did, they, mm. did they listen to what I said there? You know, I've ordered the lasagna. Am I going to end up getting a chicken sandwich here? But those that write down the order and then repeat back, literally word for word, that's my description of mimicry here, Tristan. So you want the lasagna, you want the side salad, but you don't want any tomatoes and you want this salad on the side or this, this dressing. That explicit word for word mimicry back communicates a connection it mm. communicates that i've heard you and in some of the studies i've actually seen leads to dramatic increases in the amount of tip and gratuity that is left for the food server at the end of the meal yeah well i guess it kind of it's almost legitimizes your order so when you hear it repeated back to you from the expert then there's this sort of gratifying experience of oh well they verbalized the same thing i did I was kind of guessing, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted. I didn't know the salad was going to be tasty, but that now they've verbalized it, it it sounds like it's going to be good because it's almost like that's what that it's almost like they're ordering it. They're not ordering it, of course, they're just repeating it back, but just by hearing them utter those words, there's probably there's probably a, a certain power to that and like I say, it's it's sort of proving your order to be worthy and correct and legitimate. Yeah, and to that point you made about tribes earlier, uh, it's someone communicating, ah, they've heard me, they're on my mm. side. That reciprocity that's occurring, someone's actually taken the time and the trouble to focus on what I've said and listen to it and repeat it back. And, and the, the repeating back does something else. It demonstrates an understanding of what's been said. And... Understanding between two people is core to a connection and no surprise subsequently that that gets reciprocated by that individual, perhaps leaving a little bit of a larger tip than ordinarily they would. Mm. Nice. That's a good one. 
Uh, so what other tools are there? Anything else? Well, there's plenty. <laughs> there's plenty, in fact. So uh, let's talk for a few moments about the environment, uh, because as you pointed out a few moments ago, astutely uh, recognise that sometimes it's not necessarily what's being said or the words that are being used in a given moment that have influence. So, of course, they absolutely do. But there's the environment itself as well. What does the venue look like? What's going on in the background that can influence decisions? You know, one of my favourite examples uh, comes from a study, uh, and again, relevant to, to the bartender and, and, and bar chat world. Uh, this was done in uh, off-licenses, so, so you know, uh, liquor stores. And what they found was that um, the music that was being played in these stores had a subtle but often powerful effect on what people would choose to purchase. Um, so this sounds crazy, Tristan, but I promise you, and if you want the citations and you can go look for this yourself uh, in, in the research afterwards, here's what they found. They found that when a wine store played French music in the background, you know, over the tannoy systems, their sales of French wine went up. And then during the day, as they switched from French music to German music, sales of Riesling, the German wines, started to increase. So this is a powerful example of how the environment we find ourselves in shapes our behaviour. Um, so we can think about that in the context of the kind of tone and environment we want to set for our premises if we want people to feel like it's uh, you know a, a certain type of style we want people to feel a certain way then we organize uh, the environment be it the tables the chairs the lighting the sounds these kind of things that are aligned to those kind of outcomes that we're actually looking for so the environment is a, a really really important aspect to uh, yeah we had we had um professor charles spence on um a, a a previous episode of the podcast do listen back by the way anyone who's listening to this one you haven't heard that episode because it's really interesting and um yeah we were talking about this sort of connection between sound and and flavor and um i i mean i think he would speak into this as well uh it, it probably because what you're saying is that certain genre of music can influence our decision making process I think he would take it as far as like even the, the instruments themselves would trigger certain kind of flavor experiences or perhaps steer us, you know, tinkly music might steer us to more, towards like uh, carbonated drinks. I don't know, I'm making it up, but because um, I, I don't know the data on it, but uh, it's it's really interesting hey, like how, but how easily we are manipulated in that sense. And often unknowingly, well, unknowingly ourselves for sure, and often unknowingly by the venue as well. Um, you know, no one's steering the ship in, in many respects. Um, You're exactly right about that. So, you know, of course, I'm aware of, of, of Charles's research. He's a, he's a great researcher and, uh, you know, we've drawn on a lot of his original research in some of the work that we actually do. Um, but I think your point here about almost venues, businesses kind of bungling their way into situations uh, and sometimes these things work, sometimes they don't, but they have no real way of really recognising what is the most effective way to present a menu or to welcome 
a customer or to ensure that a memory of someone's visit to your bar or your premises is a worthwhile one and, and a treasured and, and cherished one. Um, for the very reason that we were talking about a few moments ago, Tristan, this idea of, of, of social proof, what others are doing. If you open a new bar, if you open a new restaurant, and you think, what am I going to do in order to kind of construct my menu? Well, you probably do what most businesses do, and you look at the other bars that you're familiar with and say, well, how do they order their options on a menu? And you follow them because you're uncertain, so you follow what other people are doing. But What's really fascinating, this is actually a piece of work that we've been involved in, uh, myself and my team, these last three or four years, is we found a way of actually scoring a menu psychologically. We can take a menu, whether it's a, a wine list, a cocktail list, or a, a, you know, a menu from a, a restaurant or a, a snack bar, whatever it may be, and psychologically score it on a series of principles, insights from psychology, and we can show you how you can improve the engagement and influence of that menu, often just by making small tweaks to how you describe something or the order often in which you, pres uh, you, you, you present options to people as well. So, um, and it's really only now as this scientific research is becoming more available in the in the domain that it should be made available you know most of these insights you know when we publish research we publish it in these obscure journals that no bartender no restaurant manager no premises owner is ever going to go and read or seek out yeah it's only through you know well the podcasts, podcasts like this, like yeah. this <laughs> that, that suddenly open up the door to an array of insights that are available to you and sometimes it's not what's being said that matters it's who is saying what is being said that has ultimate influence and it turns out that you know bartenders uh, cocktail bar managers and owners because they are the experts have an undue influence in that environment but what's important is how that expertise of theirs is introduced we did a a study a few years ago um, and I'm just going to deviate for a second and, and go into an industry that is not related to, to bartending at this moment in time but I'll, I'll bring it back it will it will connect and, and make sense we did some studies with estate agents in London and one of the things they wanted to do was increase the number of people that chose their business to sell their house or rent their property and they said you know how can we do that how can we use the psychology of persuasion to you know, encourage more people to choose our business over, you know, a competitor's business when largely we're doing the same thing. You know, we sell the same properties in the same area. We kind of charge the same price. The service isn't really that different. How do we differentiate ourselves? And one of the things that we found in the studies was that the way that an estate agent was introduced before they made a recommendation mattered more than anything. So when someone called and said, you know, I'm interested in selling my house, who can I speak to? If the person that answered the phone, the receptionist said, well, let me put you through to Tristan. He'll be able to help with your inquiry, which was the standard thing that they actually did. Wasn't that effective. But if they simply added, honestly, some information about why the person they were about to place the call through 
was an expert. Well, let me put you through to Trishan. He's our head of sales. He's been selling property in this area for 15 years. He's a member of the London Estate Agent Guild, if such a thing existed. They increased the number of appointments to go and value those properties by 19.6% and subsequently increased the number of contracts signed to market that property by 15.5%. Now, what does that mean to the hospitality industry? Well, we've just come off the back of a program after the uh, release of the COVID restrictions. A lot of businesses are trying to get themselves back on some sound footing. You know, they've been decimated by the, the pandemic of, of, of the last 16 to 18 months. And one of the things that we found to be super successful in terms of a restaurant differentiating itself is rather than put the menu in the window of their restaurant, put photographs of the chefs. You know, if a, if a bartender legitimately has been mixing these perfect drinks for everyone's enjoyment for five, 10, 15 years, has a speciality, has taken advanced training, has those bar skill diplomas, those uh, kind of cocktail courses they've been on, um, why not present that information mm. to customers, potential customers, before they make the choice. Mm. Um, and it goes back to that point that we were making at the beginning, that, that often people decide what choice to make. I'll take this cocktail, I'll have this side dish, I'll take this, I'll take this. Not on the basis of the ingredients or necessarily the price. Often it's the way in which it's introduced or the person that's making it their expertise is introduced. That's something that we can all do, legitimately position our expertise. Yeah, and I suppose if you take that to the nth degree, what you end up with is is celebrity, right? Um, and that's why people flock to celebrity chef restaurants or, you know, bars that have famous bartenders in because they've been introduced to that person, you know, in their homes or or perhaps through word of mouth. And so, you know, it becomes a highly desirable place to go and eat and drink. Exactly right. It becomes, so in our, in our book, Messengers, we talk about these different traits that allow someone to be heard or increase the likelihood that someone is going to be heard. And that socioeconomic position, that are they rich and famous, is, is one of them. Another is competence. Hmm. This is someone who is an expert, has training, experience, has a name, um, and you know, often will we'll seek out those, those individuals um, because it's a good trigger for us to make a decision. Well, if the expert is saying this is the right thing to do, or if the, the rich and famous person is saying this is the right thing to do, or the charismatic person is saying this is the right thing to do, very often we just follow. Uh, often in a matter of milliseconds, our brains just click and go, seems like the right decision. Let's, let's do that and move on. Sure. Are there any uh, indicators to look out for for people that are perhaps, you know, more open to suggestion than other people who perhaps, you know, probably have a better idea of what it is they want and won't be, you know, steered in one direction or another? Well, I think I've got two things to say about that. So the first is, I think you're right. Um, if someone is in a position where they've made up their minds, they know what they want. Now, in the context of the bar environment, that could be your regular that always orders this particular product or always buys that beer, or always has that cocktail. We call that a stated preference. 
So for example, um, in the studies we did in menu design, we found that if you put a message next to the most popular dessert that honestly says this is the most popular dessert, then the sales of that dessert and others went up. But when we put that message on the mains, this is the most popular main dish, it had little effect at all. And the reason that we believe it had little effect was because, well, when people go to a restaurant, they're gonna have a main. You know, there's, there's, and for some people, they may already have decided the main they're gonna have. You know, if, not, if it's a fish restaurant, it's known for fish, I'm gonna have the sea bass, or if it's a, a burger, place I'm going to have this particular burger. They, they have a stated preference. They've already decided what they're going to have either before they've arrived or very, very quickly afterwards. So they're, they're, their mind is closed to persuasion. But in those circumstances where their mind is open, I never thought about a dessert. I never thought about a side. I never thought about this cocktail rather than a gin and tonic or whatever it may be. That's the domain where I think we can employ ethically and sustainably these ideas mm. and i don't see any research that shows that those people that say that they are immune to the persuasion process are any less immune than anyone that said otherwise um, so the fact that we would all prefer i think for persuasion to be something that happens to other people yeah. But we are all susceptible. The key is, and this takes us right back to where we started, to identify those moments and use these ideas and these techniques in the legitimate ones, the ones where the recommendation at the right time, the introduction of an expert, the information about what the most popular choice is, is helpful to others. And in those circumstances, everybody wins in that situation. Yeah, I think it goes to this sort of idea that free will is a bit of an illusion, really. And, you know, even if you have established that the Manhattan is your favourite cocktail, and you will not be convinced otherwise, of course, the, the route to getting to that decision in the first place would have been influenced by external factors and perhaps, you know, figures of authority that directed you in that direction. You, you know, you, didn't, you, you weren't born with this love of Manhattans. It's through external factors in the environment that's made that happen. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so just one more bit on menus. Um, we talked a little bit about wording and you know how we can be suggestive and persuasive in, in directing people towards certain dishes or, or drinks. What about, is there anything you can say to menu design, um, typography, materials, spacing, white space, that kind of thing that, you know, is a better, more effective selling tool? Yeah, I think any menu can be optimized. As I suggested a few moments ago, uh, we've uh, kind of researched and studied and created uh, a process for actually scoring a menu. It, actually is called the M score. We can take any menu and psychologically score it um, on a range of domains. So, I, I mean, I don't want to take up all your time today, Trisha, by talking through all of the theories there, but a couple of immediate ones that we can think about. Uh, the ordering is important. Um, the positioning as well. Uh, we are able to, you know, through the use of eye tracking uh, apparatus, 
uh, present menus to people and watch where their eyes goes and we can position perhaps call out or specialities in, in the hot spots on menus. Uh, turns out that people are more inclined to spend a little bit more money in a cocktail bar, for example, if you remove the currency signals hmm. from your menu. Uh, so don't have the euro, the dollar, the pound sign, uh, whatever it may be, uh, just have the number. Uh, that's been shown to have not a huge effect, but again, you know, examples of two or three small changes to a menu. And, and menus strike me as a particularly cost-effective approach to employing some of the psychology of persuasion because they're easily reprinted. Um, it's, it's not like you have to change the environment in your bar. It's not like you have to train staff. It's not like you have to invest lots of resources. A simple ordering change or mm. a, a You can test things as well, right? Test things, see how they work. And this is the key. The key is, and you know, we are a team of behavioral scientists, so we are always, always interested in, in testing, you know, uh, how do we take this menu? In fact, there's a couple of experiments going on at the moment in, um, in, in some well-known bars across the United Kingdom where in certain venues they get this order of menu and in uh, other venues they get the exact same offering, same prices, nothing changes except maybe some of the subtleties. And we can track how people make choices and we can even link it to uh, supply chain and uh, electronic points of sale systems as well. So we get real-time feedback about how uh, menu design can actually influence choice. Input and output, can, basically. Yeah, yeah, it can start to inform you about stock control. If you've got perishables, for example, you know, probably makes good sense to have good intel about how you can influence the choices of certain aspects of your menu so that you, you know, maintain adequate stock supplies, but you don't end up throwing stuff away at the end of a shift or the end of a week. So. Yeah, there's a few examples of how that technology can be applied. Fascinating stuff. I'm really intrigued by the whole menu thing. I've considered playing around with different types of typography before to see whether it sort of shifts one drink more than another or even mixing up typography so that every cocktail has its own font, if you like, to sort of create a a theme or, you know, a suggested experience around one cocktail or another to add value into the drinking experience. Well, one example we came up with recently about cocktails was um, the name that you give the cocktail, particularly if it's unique to your bar. Do you give it an intriguing, kind of engaging, almost lean-in type of name? Uh, and the thing we're testing is actually, what if you called the, the cocktail, if you, if you literally titled it, the directions of how to get to your bar? So out of the station and turn left. Is that a better name for a cocktail because it's literally giving people directions to get to it than some highbrow name uh, for the cocktail itself? So, so, so there's an example, this, this whole idea of the names and labels we apply to things uh, having a significant influence as well. well it's, one of, interesting. it's one of the great advantages we have as bartenders creating cocktails that chefs have to some extent, but they tend to conform to more kind of traditional naming or nomenclature on on sort of food menus whereas you know you, you can't create not many chefs create a new dish and call it you know uh whatever some creative like you know dark and stormy for example as a cocktail name exactly yeah. um because you're like well what is what is that um in the context of food you need to need more detail whereas we can be super creative about the naming and of course it can 
help to paint this picture of an experience that you're going to have and a way you're going to feel when you come to drink that cocktail and, and what it and how it represents you as well. Exactly right. It strikes me that a lot of the things you're saying here are actually around the context in which things are being presented rather than the thing that's being presented itself. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, I'd go one stage further, uh, Tristan, and actually say that um, often what people are introduced to first or the context in which they are looking at an option or considering an offer is more important than the offer itself. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so we know, for example, that when someone sees something expensive or if they're exposed to something expensive, it makes the next thing that they see appear either more or less expensive compared to that first thing they saw. So a classic example, there was a study done a few years ago where People were asked to estimate the value of a bottle of champagne. But before they were asked to estimate the bottle of the champagne and its value, they were asked to place their hands into a bag that had some ping pong balls. And half the ping pong balls had the number 10 and half the ping pong balls had the number 90, nine zero. And so people picked up a ball and there was a 50-50 chance it would be a 10 or a 90. And then they were asked to, you know, how much would you be prepared to pay for this bottle of champagne? And their value of that champagne was significantly influenced by the random number that they picked out of this bag. Uh, if they picked out the 10, they valued the champagne significantly less. If they picked out the 90, they valued that champagne much, much higher. So there's a really good example of what we see first influencing our perceptions of the very next thing. We call it in psychology the contrast phenomenon. Uh, so, for example, uh, a few years ago, a, a well-known Italian restaurant chain, it's now no longer in business, but it had um, a practice of putting a £3,000 Vespa motor scooter on its menu. Now, I have it on good authority, they never sold a Vespa mm -hmm. motor scooter, but it suddenly makes a cheese sandwich at 10 quid appear a lot less expensive. Um, it's because we don't see these things in isolation. You know, if you want to appear tall in a bar, it helps to have short friends. And the same is true in the way in which we position options. For example, uh, you know, what would happen if we put a more expensive option at the top of our menu? Would we nudge people up to perhaps spending a little bit more and, and, and buying a, a product that was a little bit more expensive than ordinarily if we'd have had the products uh, positioned in a different order. So it really is important. Yeah, what we see first fundamentally changes our perception of the very next thing. It's not the thing that changes, it's just what we compare it to. Yeah, it seems to me that our instincts on price are pretty much just way off most of the time. And we, we can be very easily be led down a certain route based on the perceived value of an item there's a there's an old i don't even know if this is true but it's sort of an urban myth amongst bars that a certain champagne house went into a night a high profile nightclub in london because they weren't selling enough product and they persuaded the nightclub to increase the price of their champagne making it the most expensive product on the list and lo and behold they went and sold more um and of course that's just it's people wishing to have the most expensive item. They're not 
buying it because it's the best, because presumably if it was the best, it would already be the most expensive, um, or maybe not. Perhaps the pricing is just completely arbitrary. <laughs> it's like, where do you want to position your brand? But um, it just tells us a lot about the psychology of, of how we perceive value. I actually had a, an, ex, a, an experience the other day, which was an interesting sort of psychological journey through perceived value. I was buying a piece of fitness equipment, um, which I believe was on pre-order, and I believed it to cost £350. But after placing the order, I had this panicked moment where I thought I'd only paid a 10% deposit on this item, and in actual fact, it was £3,500. I spent about two hours believing that, well, first of all, I wasn't going to pay the rest of the money, um, but also imagining that this product was way better than I had originally imagined because the RRP was £3,500. It later turned out that I had, in fact, paid the full amount. But there was this lasting impression that stayed with me that I was buying this super high-tech piece of equipment worth three and a half grand. Well, I think you're onto something. In terms of your example of the champagne in the, in the high-end uh, bar in London, I'm not sure if that's true. But what is true is the psychology that underpins that idea. In fact, uh, I mean, this is an older book of ours now, uh, Yes!, that we first published back in 2008, uh, where we talked about research that had been done in uh, Williams-Sonoma, which is uh, a well-known kitchen and utensil retailer in the United States. They had a bread-making machine, their top-of-the-range bread-making machine. It was priced at about $250, and it didn't sell at all in the brochures that they would send out and online. And so what they did was they added an even more premium bread-making machine to their brochures, one that was $499. And the sales of the $249 bread-making machine skyrocketed. Hmm. So there, I think, is you know a demonstration of that contrast that you've been talking about with the high-end champagne in action there. Introducing a higher unit price item demonstrably increased the sales of the second most expensive. But previously, it had always been the most expensive because mm. there was no comparison. Generally speaking, the first thing you see is, you know, your your anchor. And actually, you know, just briefly, there's, there's a really interesting perspective here when it comes to recruitment as well. If you're going to go for a job and there are three or four other people that are being interviewed at the same time, it makes sense for you to be interviewed last not first. This is not where first impressions count. First impression, if you're up against four or five other people being interviewed, is actually a dangerous place to be because there's no contrast. You're being compared to the, you know, the, the, the ideal candidate that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. All of us have flaws. Um, same for cocktail so, competitions as well. Same for cocktail competitions yeah. as well. Same even for the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, no one has ever won the Eurovision Song Contest by appearing and performing early. <laughs> Good Eurovision knowledge. In the contest. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine over at Columbia, Adam Galinsky, is a guy who's actually studied this. Um, generally, he finds the winners come in the final uh, kind of third or quarter of any performance, mm. uh, whether it's the Eurovision Song Contest, whether it's applying for a job, or as you pointed out there a few months ago, whether it's winning that cocktail competition. So I'm thinking a good sort of take take home piece of advice here for menus then is to consider putting a cocktail on the menu that's like double the price of the rest of them um, so that it contextually everything else seems pretty good value or, or, or you know, cheaper, more affordable. Well, uh, with one caveat, with one caveat, 
In fact, with two caveats, if you don't mind. The first is that it needs to be genuinely available. You've also got to consider where your menu is going to be viewed. So if it is online or if it is on the front of the window before people go in and they see a super expensive cocktail first, they may think, hmm, that seems like a really expensive place if that's the first thing they see. So there's a context there that matters. Um, so where people view the menu will also have to play into your calculations here. Is there anything we've missed? We'll close this up, but I'm wondering if there's any other kind of hacks for creating great customer relations and experiences that we've not touched upon. Well, given that we're at the end of our time together, perhaps it does make sense to talk briefly about the psychology of endings. Um, we've all, I'm sure, had an experience where maybe we've gone out for the evening, maybe to a restaurant with some friends, and we've had a, a perfectly good time, good company, good food, good drinks. And then something that happens at the end, uh, an unfortunate incident, you know, someone spills coffee over themselves or the taxi doesn't turn up and you're standing outside soaked, uh, waiting for a car to come along. And when those things happen at the end of an experience, you often hear people say things like, it spoiled the whole evening for me, spoiled the whole experience. Well, it didn't actually spoil the whole experience, but what it did do is it spoiled your memory of the experience. And there's a vast literature in psychology that talks about essentially how people's experiencing selves are very different to their remembering selves. Mm. And I think it's kind of important for us to pay attention to that remembering self when people visit our premises. There are, you know, it's well established in psychology that there are two moments in any experience that typically loom largest in people's memories when they think back on it. We don't think about the whole couple of hours we spent in the bar. Typically what looms largest in our memory is the peak moment of pain or pleasure that occurred and what happened at the end. And what happens at the end seems to have an outsized influence on our recollection of that experience. So can you give some sort of practical examples of the best way to sort of close an experience in a bar and actually best ways to open that experience as well? Well, opening is uh, clearly important. And I guess the obvious one is to create some sort of human connection. That's what is at the core of any successful influence and persuasion, any communication. So, you know, the name, the, you know, give your name, uh, say something, you know, we talked about perhaps compliments or some sort of welcome yeah. um, something that communicates a sense of warmth and connectivity um, and and maybe a little bit of advice at the beginning uh, a little insight a little secret or something that's particularly good uh, that's happening in that bar or in that restaurant in that uh, that particular premises um, that evening that may not necessarily be available on the menu or may not necessarily be immediately salient. Uh, I think all these things are good ideas. There's, that, there's an old trick um, which a lot of us are taught as bartenders. If you're super, super busy and a guest walks in, then you have to absolutely have to still acknowledge them. Hi, welcome. I'm really busy. Just taking care of another guest's order. I'll be with you I'll very be with shortly. You in a minute. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Because ignoring them is just, a, you know, a, you're setting yourself up for a disaster, basically. Exactly. Exactly. That's someone that's going to walk out and then there's two seats sat at your bar. That's a space because 
that that person has booked them. Exactly right. So that immediate connection. Um, hi, as you rightly say, I'm Steve. I'm just serving uh, this particular customer. Could be with you in a minute. Um, welcome. That that sort of thing. Really, really important. But endings, you know, as we talked about, are really, really important too. Arguably more important in terms of our memory. So things that one can do at the end. So, well, here's a couple of examples. There was actually a study that was done. David Stromitz, actually a, a well-known social psychologist from Cornell, which has a, a well-established hospitality uh, school, talked about how a gift at the end of a meal can have a significant influence over not just the amount of tips that people give, but their kind of uh, enjoyment of the experience and their connectedness to that business afterwards. If they if they put a mint down along with the bill, they got a little bit of an extra tip. If they put two mints down, they got a bigger tip. But here's the really interesting thing. If they put one mint down along with the bill and then turned away, and then came back a few moments later and said, actually, for you people, here's an extra mint. So it's the same two mints, but delivered one after the other. There was a 23% increase in the amount of tips that they gave to that bartender, to that uh, waiter. But think about that in terms of an ending as well. It was something personal, something significant, and importantly, something unexpected. And it's the unexpectedness in a good way that rounds off experience as well. So whether it is, you know, an unexpected uh, little gift at the end, a little, you know, taste or sample of something, whether it's actually an opportunity to come back at another time and kind of beat the queue, or if it's a particularly well-frequented bar, um, give your name and say, look, next time you come back, ask for me, I'll make sure that there's, you get this table, or you get this opportunity. Anything that signals a, a personalized and unexpected gift or service at the end strikes me as something that's uh, really important to do and importantly memorable to do. And, and, and because it happens at the yeah. end, that's, that's what looms largest in, in people's recollection and of the experience. Yeah. Don't, don't waste it in the middle. Do it at exactly. the end. It's, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it brings to mind a lot of restaurant experiences I've had in Spain and Italy and sometimes France where you get that little glass of liqueur, limoncello or grappa or whatever at the end of the meal that was totally unasked for, unexpected. And you think, wow, you know, what a, what a lovely um, you know, token of their appreciation, something I didn't have to pay for, which is always great, right? And it just sort of, it's a punctuation mark at the end of that experience that really lasts with you. And you feel special as you leave like what i mean you, deep down you know everyone else is getting it too but you feel like you've been really cared for and that you're 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 appreciated that's the key and the key is that unexpectedness because if we can look around and see that everyone else is getting the same thing as we're getting at the end you know we arguably could disassociate ourselves from that obligation from that experience at the end so you know a key recommendation is what could you provide at the end of an experience in your bar that is unique to you, um, that every other bar isn't already doing automatically. I think that that's a key thing to think about. If you can, if you can think about and focus and, and decide what that right thing is and provide that at the end, as you rightly say, Tristan, not the beginning and not in the middle, um, you're in a good place because that 
is what is likely to loom largest in their memory. How you do that, I'll leave that up to you. Um, but maybe that's the the fitting point to, to end on, the, the psychology of endings. Great, and a good way to end. Steve, thank you so much. Where, where can we find you? And where should we go to for further reading your books what, or, or, or studies if, if people have got an appetite for that? Uh, where, where do we go? Well, you can find me. Uh, I'm at influenceatwork.co.uk. Uh, that's our website. That's our company uh, organisation. If you want to find me academically, you can find me. I'm uh, the Faculty Director of Behavioural Science and Business at Columbia Business School. And on Twitter, you can find me at Science of Yes. And uh, the latest book is called Messengers, How to Get Heard. Brilliant stuff. Thank you ever so much for coming on board. And um, we'll ha maybe we'll have you back sometime. That'd be wonderful. Because um, there's so much, so much of this, I think we could deep dive even further. Um, and um, I would love to do that sometime. Me too. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks for listening to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. Follow and subscribe now to pick up on future episodes or listen back to episodes so far. And remember to rate and review as you listen. See you next time.